And I'm telling all of this to come to the point for the current Iranian queers, there is a constant battle of, especially if you're already grown up in Iran and you are completely lost. And then when you come to the West, you can also be even more lost because the Western standards might not accept you for who you are, might not accept your beauty for who you are, your existence, your identity. And then when you look at your own country, it does not at all. And the thing is, having a knowledge of a past beyond this revolution, something that belonged to two, three centuries ago, gave me a much more sense of confidence mm -hmm. and inner knowledge and wisdom mm. of, okay, this is not being queer. Queer identity is not just a Western definition. It is not just a white definition. It also existed in where I am from. Queering the Perspective with Bela Bellissima. So, hello everybody. Welcome to this 15th. Yeah, 15th episode of the podcast <laughs> and happy new year to everyone 2022 it's time to queer perspectives even more now it's the new year we have lots of things to do and today i'm very excited to start with this mission with a very special guest Amun. hello hi hi everyone happy new year voice noise heureuse année salenu mubarak yes 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 <laughs> that's the spirit we need <laughs> so before we start with our topic which will be roughly about decolonizing queerness and different layers of that i wanted to ask you if you can introduce yourself in a few sentences so what are your pronouns uh, where were you born and where do you live currently all right so my name is damon my english pronouns are they them Auf Deutsch, keine Pronomen. Mm -hmm. My French pronouns, yel, and in Persian, it's u, because there's only one pronoun in Persian. It's a gender neutral language. Work. <laughs> Work. Learn um, something German. <laughs> I was born and raised in Tehran, which is Iran's capital city, for those of you who might not know. Shame. <laughs> um, I currently live in Berlin, and um, what do I do? I am doing my studies at Film University Babelsberg and I'm almost toward the end of my uni studies. Hopefully Work. I'll be done in less than a year. And I'm working on the side at She Said Bookshop Cafe. I'm a member of the whole team that we're there. We run the whole space together. In case you haven't been there or you don't know about She Said, it's a queer feminist bookstore where we also have coffee and other you know drinking and baked goodies on the side very recommendable if you haven't been absolutely <laughs> and um i just do a lot of you know tiny bits and pieces here and there around my life i recently started writing for transcodiat magazine which is kind of germany's first queer literature magazine focusing on amplifying trans and non-binary voices I'm a member of Voices for Berlin Collective, which is a kind of a political collective that also focuses on intersectional queer activism in Berlin and Germany. And it's part of the whole Voices for Network. So we have one in London, one in New York, and they're also trying to grow it further and further. 
And on top of that, I also recently started my own podcast, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is called Fly Me to Damon mm -hmm. or Fly Me to Damon. Let me. Okay. Let me <laughs> to oh, you know the lyrics? <laughs> this means so much to me. <laughs> I listened to it like three times in a row. The first time I was like, how original. Like, my jingle is so like basic. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> it's like, um, yeah, it just, the lyrics came out actually out of a sudden, like a volcano erupted out of me. And I was sitting next to my friend who is a professional singer who was helping me to come up with like, what do we write? And she was immediately like, why are you just sitting next to me and telling me about it? Get your phone out and just <laughs> note these down. Mm -hmm. And I did. And this is how basically we came up with the whole idea. Yes. Yes. Yes, yes. Ah, beautiful. Thank you. So nice to connect also with different podcasters. And yeah, for every for all of you that didn't check it out, you should definitely check out the first two episodes that mm -hmm. you published already. Yes, and the next one's oh, coming out in a week. Is it? Yes, yeah, yes. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. So I'm going to link the description below in the podcast description. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, yes, then let's get started, shall we? Shall we? Shall. So first of all, we t I touched upon the idea of decolonizing in different episodes already, particularly in number twelve, number thirteen, <laughs> number thirteen, trans feminine of color, and uh, where we spoke about the fact that oftentimes queerness is perceived as being exclusively reserved to white people and that that excludes people of color and particularly trans people of color from the community which is then leads to multiple layers of marginalization but i wanted to ask you what does decolonizing queerness mean to you personally well for me personally there are different layers to it i would say the first most um publicly perceived layer of decolonizing queer um, identity is um, the public image of what it what queerness is basically shown on mainstream media and by that I do not mean these amazing great um, Instagram accounts of mm -hmm. all these influences that we have and we love each and every one of them but the problems with many of these accounts is that they just usually are stuck within their own demographic mm -hmm. and they don't reach the bigger other demographics out there and when you still look at the world outside of our own woke bubbles or our own intersectional bubbles the image of queerness still to this date uh, in the most progressive feminist progressive countries is a white cis gay man to the best most progressive example would be a white cis gay woman mm -hmm. and it doesn't go much further beyond that even if it comes to fluidity usually it's again kind of a kind of a cis male presenting in a white form uh, wearing makeup uh, that is just presented as a queer image mm -hmm. and so for me this is one of the main things to that 
uh, I really try to focus on when I talk about whole decolonizing topic is that uh, the, is to bring the main focus on the fact that there are many nations and many countries which have been queer, which have been fluid throughout centuries and histories. Many of these indigenous lands, for example, be it from North America to Australia and New Zealand to India and so on and so forth, before colonizers got there, they were living such complete different lives. They were, they were living lives on different parts of the whole spectrum. Some even had different definitions for gender. They had diverse words for gender. They did not just have two binary words of male and female to perceive gender by. And also, when you dive deeper into it, there are historical examples throughout the whole thing, which I will focus on a little bit later through this podcast. But this was for me like the most important thing is to also focus the queer visibility image kind of on the rest of the whole marginalized community as well, be it the trans and non-binary, you know, black and brown and people of color. Um, be it an Asian person, for example, a migrant and a refugee, mm. and um, focus on the whole diversity of it, which is what is mm. currently lacking, including in the whole advertisement and commercial agencies when you look at it. Right. I mean, for me, I, I think the biggest part is always that it's it seems like it's denying the existence of so many people. And then what we also talked about in episode 13 is that it makes it so difficult to feel seen because also because you're not seen from the mainstream but then but then also in in bipoc communities it's also of course there's like a queer phobia to a certain extent so it's just you get you get the shame the violence from all sides and then you're left to your own devices and yeah exactly and uh, this is another thing that sometimes i like to focus on is when it comes to the dating world within the whole queer yeah, community point, yeah. yeah within the whole queer community itself i see that by the whole majority i'm still like not fully accepted uh, or and or they're just confused by my existence mm. because they see my face they see that kind of a dark beard on this face mm. and mostly like you know bald and yeah. then when the makeup goes on or mm. and or when gender fluid clothes go on I see that the majority of people have no category to put me in mm. and that's when most of them are easily just either annoyed of my existence or, yeah. and or I receive microaggressions from different individuals, even if yeah. it's at just a queer bar, yeah. or even a, or be it at a in, in the dating world. Mm. That basically, um, I can see that it has still not been decolonized, yeah. my existence and the image. And that's also the politics of desire, I find, that there's always still this beauty standard image that we follow, that it's... I mean, of course, it's binary, so it's like either you wear makeup or you have a beard. <laughs> yeah. And then also, like, still, this needs to then conform with whiteness, you know, that like a white woman with makeup and long hair, you know, like that's the beauty standards that we follow and that also many trans people also follow. Mm-hmm. And that it's so hard to deconstruct because you're constantly confronted with it and I also feel that myself and of course like for me I don't experience this racism part at all but I I always feel these like beauty standards like coming and like knocking at my door and being like yeah no you're not invited here and I think it's so hard to 
to fight against that mm -hmm. and to know that your own beauty is not defined by anyone else or not defined by some mainstream status quo image of what it of what a beautiful body looks like. Yes, exactly. And which is why based on also like what you just said, I really believe that uh, visibility does matter. Mm -hmm. And I do not mean just in this in the performative sense. Mm -hmm. And it obviously does not end with visibility, but it right. is the first step. So as long as people like us, as long as even more marginalized people, people with other demographic backgrounds mm -hmm. are not visibly portrayed mm -hmm. as desirable people, as romantic people, not just as the aggressive mm -hmm. person, not just as the toxic person, then we are not achieving what we want. And another example is what I was talking with another friend of mine. They also face kind of similar experiences. If I step out of my home in cis male representing clothes yeah. with no fluid makeup on my face, I basically only face either microaggressions and or these like low-key daily racism that might mm -hmm. be. And sometimes it's in the sense of if another person is walking toward me on the sidewalk and they see me, they suddenly walk a few mm -hmm. steps away mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, deliberately. And the funny thing is the moment that I start going out in a gender fluid sense mm. it's like the opposite way it's the opposite way mm. i am either extremely suddenly desired by some cishet people <laughs> which becomes really confusing <laughs> especially um by the cis female population that suddenly mm. they look at me and now they're smiling like, at me Work. yeah now i'm getting their you know <laughs> check of approval yeah. and then it turns the other way around that a heavy population of cis male uh, on the street, on the society, yeah. uh, are suddenly giving me these either extremely weird looks, they're either offended by my existence, mm. and or another thing that is so easily clockable is that they are suddenly finding me in a, attractive but in a confused way. Which makes them aggressive. Aggressive, exactly. Aggressive. Like I see that suddenly this aggressive, yeah. toxic male existence being projected at me yeah. only because they're confused by my existence and suddenly they find it attractive. Mm, yes, I think that's such an important point that's so often left out that this fragile masculinity that is triggered just simply by us like walking on the street, you know? Absolutely. Like, looking at them and like you know, just being friendly, you know, just being like a decent human being. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and then, you're, and then, and then you, you see these like extremely aggressive behavior towards you if it's like verbal, doesn't even have to be physical, it can also mm. just be like with the body language that you just feel like they're upheld by something. Absolutely, you see it in the eyes, and this is what I call existing in the form of activism. Yeah. That just you're existing, you're yeah. walking down the street, this is already a political activist form. Yeah, which I mean, it is very sad. <laughs> of course, it's like, <laughs> we have to do so little, and it also shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't be like walking, mm -hmm walking how do you say that walking like museum objects you know like walking educational objects that you can like ex exhibit exhibit and people go there and stare at it and learn you know mm. because we are our own subjects and that's i think when later we're going to talk about telling stories and the importance of storytelling i think it's always a question from which perspectives are we looking at these instances mm -hmm. because it's very easy to to see how the dominant society behaves towards us, but then it's a question of like, how do we feel? Like, where do we see ourselves in this like subject position? Mm -hmm. And do we, like, where is our agency? Do we have any agency in this? Or are we just sort of like objected to this 
violence or external perception. Definitely, and which is why for this huge um, number of people in the society who just look at people like us and they say, oh, look at you, now you can walk down the street being who you are. Yeah. What more do you want? You already got everything. This is why they need to listen to podcasts like this mm. to actually, you know, sip on the whole tea. Yeah. Um, this reminds me also of, there's this quote by Laverne Cox, which is like, it's a revolutionary act for trans people to exist in a public space in a world that tells us we don't exist. Exactly. And this is existing in the form of activism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. And one thing that you touched upon earlier, where I wanted to elaborate on a bit, which is the idea of hair or body hair. Mm -hmm. And you said like with you, you know, like we're not putting on makeup and wearing more like cis male perceived clothing, like that's very easily to completely go into this like male category mm -hmm. and um, and then almost like people are afraid of you in a sense of like trying like, as you said, like taking a few steps to the side, which is <laughs> yeah. then also, of course, this idea or this construct also of like the, the dangerous like man of color almost that you, I mean, not almost, literally like that this is also yeah, even like young adults perceive this very much like when there's a crowd of black teenagers or teenagers of color that they're yeah. perceived as very threatening. And yeah, I wanted to I wanted to ask, do you have any thoughts on this, you know, of how race and gender can be perceived also in that way? I mean, most of the times we think that like race and gender intersect in the way that like trans women of color, for example, face a lot of marginalization, which is yeah. undoubtedly true. But then you also have this other side of the story. Yeah, yeah. I think this is all coming down to the binary structure mm -hmm. of everything. And I'm not only talking about gender. We live in a very globally binary construct world. So it, the, the same topic comes down to racial perception as well. Mm -hmm. So either a POC, either a foreigner, either a refugee, a migrant, is a good or bad person. They're either aggressive and or a complicit they're either fully assimilated slash integrated mm -hmm. into a society and or they're completely not and then they're an outcast and they're uncivilized right. so to quote unquote <laughs> and this is the problem that um, especially once you are fallen into that demographic you, you mm. deal with and you're exposed to many subconsciously many without like even acknowledging actively mm -hmm. what's happening around them when i talk to um other for example foreigners here who face all these microaggressions on a daily basis and they have no idea what's going on around them exactly and it's just like bringing down it's draining their mental mm. health and i think that for people like us for people like me and people who already belong to one demographic, for example, a POC. And then they bring another demographic into their identity, queerness, transness, for example. And suddenly these two demographics are merged into one another, which mm -hmm. is the basic definition of intersectionality. Mm -hmm. When this is presented to the society, the society suddenly goes uh, glitch, glitch. How mm -hmm. do how does my software process this? <laughs> because either you have to be like this kind of foreigner and POC, and or you have to be a queer person. And again, yes. it's kind of lo also low key related to the decolonization mm -hmm. topic. But apart from that, 
um, it says more and more how a lot of people who are at the standing point of different intersectionalities, they have to deal with different binary standards. Mm. So and I'm, now I'm bringing the topic to myself. I have to deal with not just the binary gender, binary beauty standards, but also with binary racist standards mm. that on a daily basis, I have to be proven everywhere that... I'm a good foreigner, mm. that I am integrated enough, that I speak Deutsch ganz fließend, otherwise <laughs> I'm not, I, I don't deserve to be here, uh, f- like fluently to speak it. Yeah. And, you know, the list goes on and on. Yeah. And if for someone who has not fully actively acknowledged this, it will have a huge toll on their mental health. Mm-hmm. And the worst part is that the person who lives at this uh, turning point of intersectionalities has to take the whole burden to do the work we have to do because the society won't do it for us. Mm. The privileged and entitled uh, side of the society will not do that work. Yeah, because it's also invisible because it's going on inside your head. Exactly. It's like mental work. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And with this uh, ganz fließend Deutsch <laughs> that you <laughs> talked about, I wanted to make a little turn to what we s- what we spoke about earlier with your German passport and oh. that situation. What what did we notice there? <laughs> oh yeah, uh, I was uh, telling a friend of mine about it. Just actually the same friend a few days ago. And <laughs> nice friend. <laughs> uh, we love just you know um, I don't know trash talking some traumatic experiences for yes. empowerment purposes. Yes. And she was uh, saying one thing like, you know, Germany is lucky to have given the citizenship to you. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I never looked at it this way. Mm. And it, it sounds hella superficial and, you know, show offy when you put it this way. But once you fall into my side of the struggles and the perspectives, it's actually so empowering to look at it that way. Mm. Then I don't have to feel like I have to apologize on a daily basis mm-hmm. for having received the citizenship. Mm-hmm. So obtaining my German citizenship suddenly turned to be a complete turn of um, events <laughs> for my whole life. <laughs> Everything took a complete turn of um, course and turn of action. Um, from the day that I received it, And I had to go to different government offices, first of all, to take care of other paperwork, you know, like, for example, to your insurance office, to to the municipality, like Bürgeram, and to other places, because you have to update everyone. For the first time in my life, was I suddenly treated with a lot more respect? Mm. I was I was spoken to in a normal manner. Mm. In most of the previous times, they would either like raise their voice because they would assume that I might not understand German properly. And this is a typical, by the way, German perception that instead of speaking uh, like slower, the tempo, they just speak as fast, but in a much louder tone (laughs) when they say you don't understand it. And um, so suddenly, first of all, I was treated in in that same manner. But apart from that, I was exposed to a sudden rush of Um, privileges Mm. that I kind of knew about the few Mm. I knew what I should expect but I didn't know to this extent Mm. five days after receiving my citizenship 
I decided to fly to London. Mm. Because for those of you who don't know, even before Brexit, UK was never part of Schengen. Mm. Schengen is this agreement between a lot of uh, actually all, all EU countries, which is a freedom of movement. So for someone like me who was already in Germany and had the residency after having their asylum application accepted and so on, um, I was allowed to move freely within all Schengen member states within EU except for the UK because mm-hmm. the United Kingdom, uh, Scotland and Northern Ireland these two were never part of Schengen Agreement. Mm-hmm. And so in the past I had tried to visit and they had refused my visa application mm. based on no logical sense. They were basically like, we're not convinced that <laughs> you would go back to Germany mm. after your tourist visit. So I was super anxious, but I wanted to do it because I was like, now I have this golden document <laughs> <laughs> and I want to visit the first, you know, cl- sorry. And I want to visit the closest, you know, non-Schengen zone mm-hmm. or country. So I booked my ticket. I went to the airport and first of all, the the German side at the airport gave me so much like respect for this. Mm-hmm. They were super well mannered. Suddenly, they were just like, uh, I don't know, good morning, getting the passport, <laughs> and then like, uh, wishing me a good day and just letting me pass. I was like, that's it, <laughs> no questions asked. And it was the same when I when I reached London. I was super mm. anxious. I was like. What are they going to ask me? Nothing, nothing. Mm. Just having a look at my passport. And they were like, I don't know, enjoy your stay in the United Kingdom. And that was <laughs> it. That was pretty much yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, Like all of a sudden you're a tourist. Like. Exactly. All of a sudden, no question. Whereas in the past, I don't know, like tens of twenties of questions of mm. what is your purpose of visit? Mm. Do you have relatives here? What do you do back in your home country? And so on and mm. so forth. Mm. And apart mm. from this, also... Um, I had to deal with some bank issues that suddenly the moment that I became a German citizen, everything went through Mm. super fast, super quickly, no more bureaucratic hassle. Whereas in the past I had to sign extra papers. I had to deal with so much more heavy workload. Mm. Yeah, it's really crazy to see like how the nation state is also so much a part of this equation. And I mean, that comes back to the uh, idea of of decolonizing because like some (laughs) countries the colonizing countries have this higher status still because they are like the white countries the rich countries and then the colonized countries Mm. which is um yeah the most countries of the global south yeah have this much lower much lower perception at least by Mm. the passports and that of course is like intrinsically linked to like racism and border regimes. I mean, also if we look at how refugee discourses are pres- are presented and talked about here, mm-hmm. and yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a whole new that's a whole dimension that oftentimes we are not seeing so much. Yeah, it's like of course you have this race factor which is very obvious, or mm-hmm. like it can it can jump uh, like it can be can be more obvious but then the question of like what does this little document in your pocket say about you is yet a whole other level absolutely regardless of your look yeah pretty much yeah and i had my very first like low-key experience of my of what uh, a lot of poc germans talk about the stories that i heard firsthand from my poc german friends and i had that like tiny experience but i had my 
um, fun with it because mm-hmm. I was like, I'm not going to get triggered by this. And this was right at the airport before I f- got, got on my flight and I had to go through border you know, control. Uh, before that, there was a person who was standing at this kind of a make two choices. And one side was saying um, German citizens mm-hmm. and uh, the other side was saying the rest of the world kind of a thing. Mm. And the moment I came up the escalator, like he just looked at me and he was like, Sie müssen nach links. Like, mm. You have to go to the left. And then I just stood there. And I stared into his eyes behind my FFP2 mask. <laughs> and after two, three seconds, he was like, oh, I like he was telling me in German. Oh, I'm sorry. Maybe you are German. <laughs> you need to go to you need to go to the right. Oh <laughs> and then I just looked at him and I was like, yeah, ich bin doch Deutscher. <laughs> and then I moved to the right side. And um, yeah. as I said, this is not something that I grew up with the struggle. That's why for me, it was super easy to just have fun with and push it aside. But yeah, I could yeah. see how and why all the POC Germans still struggle with this. Yeah, and of get course. This traumatized goes by, away regardless, yeah. Of, yeah. regardless of the passport. So exactly. Yeah. And okay. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> now this is a big jump, but I feel like let's 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 go to the next topic that we wanted to talk about. Otherwise, we could sit here, I think, for like two hours <laughs> talking about passports <laughs> and racist border controls. Um, but what what um, we wanted to really zoom in today was a perspective that you wanted to bring in, which was um, the perspective of gender in Iran and the pers- and particularly the book um, Women with Mustaches and Men Without Beard. And then also the relationship, of course, with Europeans or like whiteness and how like race plays a factor there as well. Mm -hmm. So maybe can you give first an introduction of what this book is to Mm -hmm. those of the listeners that haven't read it or haven't heard about it? Definitely. So this book is a 12-year research work of Afsan and Najma Badi, who is a professor at Harvard University's Iranian and Gender Studies Department. And it's called Women with Mustaches and Men Without Beards, Sexual Anxieties of Iranian Modernity. What Afsana or Miss Najma Badi manages to do in this book is uncovering a lost or hidden part of Iranian history, mm-hmm. more or less starting from late 18th century to early 20th, where Mm. a massive change happened throughout the whole society Mm. of um, a massive change of binarism, of beauty standards, of gender perception happened. So basically by late 18th century, early 19th century Iran, during the monarchy back then, which was the Qajar or as we say Qajar dynasty, the life was much more fluid. Not just for the royalties at the palace, but also at the, you know, society itself. So the country itself was in a lot of poverty back then, for sure. But that's because of other reasons, because of the political stand that it had and so many other resources that were just being basically drained Mm -hmm. um, by other nations and especially by from some Western countries. That's a different topic. So around late 18th to early 19th century, Um, a lot of French and British companies and or investors started pouring into Iran. And this was the moment that they were all heavily interested in a lot of like natural resources that were there to not just continue the trade with like silk or carpet, but also with like mineral um, resources that were there. And 
Then this sudden systematic shaming of beauty standards mm. began that was caused by Westerners and it first started at the palace. Mm-hmm. So by then, by the time that those Westerners got there, they were immensely shocked of how in their own written words, in their own diaries, how ugly and confusing people looked because the wives and the women and the daughters at the palace for the Shah, the queen, the king, they had a different body image than what the West perceived as beauty. Mm-hmm. So they were people of basically like obese body standards. They were literally women with mustaches, hairy armpits, hairy legs. Mm. And these were all considered very beautiful. The statues that were presented throughout the whole country, for example, angels had mustaches. Mm. Angels were completely fluid. The men, quote-unquote, the men who Mm -hmm. worked for the royal palace, the men who worked as, like, ministers for the monarchy and so on, they all had nail polishes on. And Mm. this was considered back then, this form of, like, these are the the educated um, demographic of the society. What was very common is they they used to wear a skirt, kind of like a wavy skirt carrying a sword on one side wearing nail polish on with a very long like kind of polished beard and these were considered like you know high class and you couldn't mess with them basically and then they also got started uh, systematically shamed and another thing that the author did was studying centuries of paintings poetry biographies and autobiographies as well of different artists of the queen or different queens who lived at the palace and it shows how people's sexual practices were very fluid there was Mm -hmm. a very thin line between what is man and woman Mm -hmm. in many of these paintings when you look at them you cannot distinguish these Mm -hmm. two people making love one of them is even on the cover of the for the most uh, popular one you cannot tell if these are two men, if these are two women, if it's a man and woman, it's very mm. fluid. It goes beyond this binary definition. Mm. And then this slow change started throughout the whole 19th century, which by the end of the 19th century has been well established. So all these uh, men, they were forced to conform to the binary standard of a beauty. They were forced to remove their nail polish, not wear a skirt anymore, mm. to trim their beard, mm. to and homosexuality suddenly became frowned upon. It was not illegal back then. There was no punishment, but it became frowned upon and it mm. became something shameful and sinful to do. And it was the same for women. Women were forced systematically to lose weight, to shave their hairy body parts. And the change also followed through the whole literature work. That mm-hmm. suddenly many of these poetry works that were written, now they were forced to be mentioned who they're making love to. And this goes uh, back to what I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, that Persian is a gender-neutral language, mm-hmm. which leaves a lot of room for ambiguity. Right. Even to this day, I can talk to you for an hour without you knowing the gender of the person, because mm-hmm. I can just leave mm-hmm. it totally mm-hmm. ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was heavily present, in the, especially for the, for the poetry world which suddenly started changing a lot. And I'm telling all of this to come to the point for the current Iranian queers, there is a constant battle of, especially if you're already grown up in Iran and you are completely lost. And then when you come to the West, you can also be even more lost because the Western standards might not accept you for who you are, might not accept your beauty for who you are, your existence, your identity, 
and then when you look at your own country it does not at all and the thing is having a knowledge of a past beyond this revolution something that belonged to two three centuries ago gave me a much more sense of confidence mm -hmm. and inner knowledge and wisdom mm. of okay this is not being queer queer identity is not just a western definition it is not just a white definition it also existed in where i am from and it opened a whole different discourse of conversation and knowledge mm -hmm. for me that i started having with different people that i met throughout different geographical locations who share the same kind of background and stories another thing that i could add as an example was in 2015 a friend and I went to Deutsches Historisches Museum mm -hmm. and there was this temporary exhibition on history of homosexuality and queer identity. And there was a section on um, Native American tribes. What I found completely fascinating and I had no idea about were a lot of these tribes, and it's documented, it's there, a lot of these tribes, what they used to do is at times of war, famine, um, conflicts, the, the leader of the tribe would call in, you know, all these important people into their tent, mm -hmm. such as the fortune teller, the commander of, you know, the, the soldiers that they had. And what they would also do, they would always invite the gender fluid, the trans and queers into their two tent, the two spirited people and so on and so forth, because they believe that these people are able to also <clears throat> strategize and perceive beyond what a man and woman could yeah. and at many times this was actually helpful for them to combat different battles mm. and within their tribes these people lived in harmony next to one another in different tents they adopted the child of the tent next to them in case the parents would die for example in a battle and there was never much of discrimination because mm. toward them because they were all believed that this is like part of the course of the nature yeah and then today there's this there's this idea okay in the western hemisphere we have queerness you know and then in the rest of the world is queerphobic yeah like all of a sudden like this is a almost like a universal truth like you grow up here you're like oh here it's good elsewhere you need to be afraid exactly which is again a binary perception yeah exactly yeah. and it's and i think these examples are so powerful as you said because they make very clear and very visible how there was different versions of different society before and how it's the how it's simply the fact of how history is presented and how history is whitewashed through colonization and how norms of heterosexuality and the gender binary was imposed in so many different parts of the world which then made the society inherit these norms and forget mm -hmm. about their own ancestry almost i mean it's like a, it's a legacy that mm -hmm. that was going on for centuries and now it's completely erased almost from the national consciousness so from reading a bit about the book myself and everything that you explained just now what i think is so powerful is that it really gives an archive to queer existence throughout time and space basically it shows us that our idea of white western queerness of the 21st century mm -hmm. is not up to date basically because there's many things many i mean many elements of queerness that happened way before and yeah. it's just a way of how history is presented and what parts mm -hmm. of history are erased because of who wrote history exactly why it's his head rich men 99 of the time so i think this is really a form of 
archival work that brings to the forefront so much of queer existence and also legitimizes queer identities today that are existing that are existing between cultures and that are existing in intersecting identities mm -hmm. and it tells the stories of these people which is so important to give visibility also and represent i mean it's a form of representation to us living today and about this fact of storytelling or the power of storytelling writing stories and to have other people reading the stories i wanted to make a relatively smooth bridge i mean <laughs> to um, the transcodiert magazine which you talked about in the beginning already and your own contribution to that so first of all for can you explain maybe to those of the listeners that don't know what is the magazine and mm. how did it come about Well, um, Transcodiert, I think, is like um, one of the most rare or maybe even the first of its kind in Germany of a, a queer literature magazine with the focus of amplifying um, trans and non-binary and genderqueer and gender fluid voices and mm -hmm. authors and their work. And what I like about what they do is they collaborated. Uh, this is the first issue that was published in November, and they collaborated with... Um, a people of complete different backgrounds. Some are already low-key, well-established in the writing world. Some are well-established in the activist world, in the influential world. Some are absolutely like nowhere, you know. They're just like written a beautiful thing and it's there and it's out there and it's the first work. So I love this diversity of when you go through different authors of what they've written and how they've connected their own stories. I basically was contacted by Transcodiate online through Instagram, which is also where you and I met. <laughs> cute, cute, cute. Yeah, so, you know, sometimes Instagram is good. It brings, like, you know, queer people together. Yeah, and I mean, for us. sure. I think that's the only reason for me, you know, why I can still, you know, like, somehow legitimize the exactly. usage of this. <laughs> and I was quite happy about it. So, like, I was asked to join Transcodiate as one of the house authors, basically, who would be featured in every issue. And I, I felt quite honored <laughs> yeah. by that. And I think the main reason that that happened is due to these personal posts that I put up on Instagram every now and then every few months where I write just a low-key kind of a personal story, be it about coming out, about gender fluidity, about racism and so on and so mm -hmm. forth. Um, some of which that I'm sure you've seen as well, Bella. And then, so I write quite often in my alone times when mm -hmm. I'm just on my own. This is my kind of a empowering tool that I have for myself. Mm. Be it when I'm when I faced a microaggression situation outside, racism, queerphobia, transphobic situation, or even a super funny, empowering situation, anything that basically affects me in a positive, negative, or and or negative way, I like to put it down. Mm -hmm. I usually do that. Mostly it's the negative situations because writing is this form of therapy for me. Yes. After coming home on the same or next day of having witnessed or experienced a traumatic experience, mm. I put it down into words. And sometimes <clears throat> I just write like a mini paragraph. Sometimes I write pages about it. Mm. And sometimes I come back to it a few days later. Mm. I even put so much work into it. I polish it. I turn it into a beautifully written, grammatically correct text. <laughs> and by the time that I am done with it, I am really done. 
Yeah. I am completely dissociated from that traumatic experience as if I'm just floating above it and I'm looking down at to like, okay, this is what happened to me. Now I feel empowered and I am ready to tell my friends, to tell my safe people about what happened. Yeah. And sometimes I even write short fiction stories inspired by what just happened to mm-hmm. me and I, yeah, I, I <laughs> and I give a complete different empowering ending to it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so instead of literally writing what happened to me this is what I do I create a fictional character mm-hmm. I name them I put them in a different society and so on and I just like inspire this course of story and so it was quiet of a nice challenge for me yes. when Transcodia contacted me because I was like, okay, I have this massive archive in front of me on my laptop. Mm-hmm. What do I start with? Mm-hmm. And what I did in the end was I took one of the main stories. I wrote a bit of a personal introduction to it at the beginning. And I added some of the mini stories that I had on some s- small paragraphs at the end of that. Mm-hmm. And in, ter- in the end, it turned into a very, in my opinion, very kind of a personal, you know, polished essay that starts with my own introduction, has a main plot, has a main synopsis, and is ended by having low-key different situations and some kind of like my own general perspective of, okay, what are we going to do about this? Mm. What is going to happen now? Mm-hmm. Yes. Beautiful. <laughs> And you were so kind to offer to read us maybe a little part of the section, maybe for people that are wondering, like, okay, sounds nice, but what is actually happening? <laughs> so, yeah, if you, if you still want to, would you like to read this first part of your piece? Sure, I would very much be happy to do that. In case you already have transcoded in front of you, listeners, <laughs> go grab it. Go to page 77. And in case you don't, just, you know, sit Run back. to the store, go to page 77. <laughs> yes. Stop the recording and then... Stop the recording, go grab a copy. <laughs> <laughs> go grab the copy now. Do not listen any further. <laughs> um, no, just sit back and, you know, close your eyes and enjoy the read. So the title of my essay is... Aber ich meine nicht Flüchtlinge wie du. Du gehörst zu den Kurden. Oh, but I don't mean you. You are one of the cool immigrants. You seem so well integrated. We need more foreigners like this. I have lost count of the number of times that I have heard such cringe words by white people. The number of times I have been white-splained that I deserve to be in Germany while other migrants and refugees don't. What do I have to say about that? It is incredible how immensely xenophobia and internalized racism can be rooted within the white majority population of a society. Internalized because even the majority of woke locals here are so ashamed of their dark past that they don't even openly acknowledge the crimes their close family members, relatives and neighbors had committed. And tragically, the German subconscious does not move any further than this stage shame, which results in a society fearful or simply careless of even taking open steps on how to be anti-racist and anti-queerphobic. Have I often been misgendered while receiving such racist remarks? Absolutely. How many of these racist, transphobic moments do I remember? All, vividly, as if it happened a moment ago. 
I even remember the proud smug on white faces, giving me their unwanted confirmation that I have passed their test of being a good foreigner. Once upon a sunny afternoon in Berlin's Kreuzkern, and as we all know, sunshine is a rare gem on this part <laughs> of planet, I was sitting at a queer bar's outdoor table waiting for my Iranian friend to arrive. I normally don't introduce people based on their nationality, but there is no way of skipping that in this story. I was having a brief phone call en français with a gorgeous person from Paris whom I was dating on and off back then. The table next to mine kept staring at me every once in a while, and again, I don't usually describe people in such manners, but in order to draw a clear image, they were two white, cisgender gay men in their mid to late 30s, clearly a couple. My phone call ended. I could see they couldn't help it anymore, and as they started talking to me, I realized my intuition was right regarding what they were about to say. Ooh, what were they about to say? I'm just gonna <laughs> leave it at this cliffhanger so you all go and get transcodiert and read the rest. <laughs> mm -hmm. And read all the other amazing stories. How many yes. authors were there in total? There's so many. There are so many. 45 authors in total. Wow, yeah, that's yes. crazy. So. And some of these are poetry, some of them mm. are, they have beautiful drawings submitted and sketches by themselves as well. Yeah. Yeah, so nice. And I think that they also, I mean, of course, they all speak for themselves, but they also speak together, right? Like it's a collective riot in a sense, like a collective written riot of mm -hmm. identities that are manifesting themselves through their own words. Absolutely. And some of them are written in German, some are English. Also, what I wanted to mention earlier that I forgot for that moment was that um, another thing that I was immediately on board when Transcordia asked me about it is because some of these stories that I told you I've written or some of the mm -hmm. essays, they go way back to like, mm. for example, 10 years ago mm. because I didn't just come directly to Germany. Mm -hmm. I lived for, for years in Turkey. I lived for a while in Cyprus, in Greek Cyprus. I lived for a while um, in Paris as well, in Dubai. And there are different experiences of where I was, even like where I was regarding accepting my own identity back then a complete different person mm, yeah and and those stories you can also now incorporate within. exactly mm -hmm. exactly so sometimes i think in some of the stuff that i will submit there might be um a bit of a element of surprise for the reader mm -hmm. that suddenly oh this is not the damon of now or 2020 mm. this is like 2014 mm -hmm. or 2005 mm -hmm. or something yeah yeah And how is it, is it, is there going to be a second issue of Transcodiert or how is it going on in the future? Yeah, I think there's definitely going to be because I've already spoken to the small but lovely team of editors who run Transcodiert because um, I'm not part of that and I'm only part of the, you know, the writers for it. But um, the thing is, Transcodiert started kind of a voluntary project by a small group of amazing queers um, which was self-funded and partly funded uh, by this grant from the state. And <clears throat> this money was enough to issue the first or publish the first issue. And so this all depends also on the timing for the second issue of how mm -hmm. much money they've managed to collect so that they can work on the second issue. But I hope that 
you know, in a few months, this would also be released too. Nice. Yeah. Yes, that would be wonderful. I think this is exactly what needs to happen more and more, you know, like Absolutely. it needs to grow and needs to reach more people and it, mm-hmm. it can because it has such a potential to, first of all, educate people, raise awareness, but also create empowerment for the writers themselves mm-hmm. and because i mean as we all know as a queer trans writer it's not so easy to just like go to the main like publishing house and ask like oh can you please like publish me you know yeah it's, it's not like that's happening every every day although it's happening more and more now and this it's diversifying also of course the field of literature but it's still a very slow process at least from my perspective i I 100% agree and even when we're talking about uh, decolonizing queer standards queer beauty and so on it is happening Mm. but it's happening as you said very slowly i Mm. see the change when i rewind to five years ago yeah sometimes when you rewind to a year you don't see much of a change but when you go like five years five years you see it so i feel like within the next five to ten years we have achieved much more but I am, my sole personal wish is to just have this speed, you know, kind of move on yeah. faster. And also in an intersectional way, because I think, yeah, like white queer publishing is also already happening, or mm-hmm. there is already visibility, representation, and mm-hmm. like reach for white queers, white German queers mm-hmm. happening. Yeah. But not so many, not so much for BPOCs or for migrants or mm-hmm. trans people. Yes. yes. So, 2022, you know what to do. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I think we're slowly coming to the end of this conversation, unfortunately, unless people want to listen to a three-hour podcast and just write us and we can arrange. (laughs) But, yeah, before we end, I wanted to ask if there's anything that you want to say, anything you want to put out there to the listeners. Mm -hmm. Um, I would like to specifically say something to the younger listeners who are out there. And to say that as you follow a lot of stories around you, make sure to also take the time to focus on your own and on your own story and your own struggle and to find that person, that space that you can trust, where you can grow, Mm -hmm. cut the people out of your life who are keeping you from that growth and focus on your path forward on your own self journey. And remember that there is always a support system out there yeah. be it one person or a big group of the people who are for you always i mean you have bella's instagram and mine as well <laughs> feel free to drop us messages and we will always be there for you yeah, too that's really, that's... yes love you all piruz bashid azad bashid beautiful yeah i mean this could be cut edited out and then played as a mantra <laughs> every night before going to sleep like... <laughs> Decolonizing meditation. Hearing <laughs> meditation. I love that. Beautiful. Yes. So with that, thank you so much, Damun, for being here today and talking with me. Uh, thank you for all your insights and your knowledge, your wisdom. It was an absolute pleasure, darling. Thank you for having me and giving me your time. <laughs> and thank you all, everyone who was listening and. See you next time. Hear you next time. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. Queering the Perspective with Bela Bellissima.